your physiological state when you do eat sometimes matters more than what you're eating as well. If you're beating yourself up because you meant to do a 16 hour, but it's only going to be 12 hours today or 14 hours, you're putting yourself into the sympathetic dominant stress response. And guess what's going to happen? All of your blood is going to go into your muscles because that's what happens in sympathetics. And you're going to bring the blood away from your digestive system, which is you want to be in a state of parasympathetics when you're eating. So you want to be in gratitude. You want to be chewing your food and being conscious of the front of you, not just kind of getting it in because you have to get to the next meeting or what have you. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast, all about reinventing your health with safer, cheaper, more effective natural solutions and powerful lifestyle changes so that you become the CEO of your health. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder. With all of the hype around fasting today, have you ever wondered if long-term fasting or intermittent fasting for women is a good idea? This is the question that my wonderful guest, Dr. Stephanie Estima, and I are going to be answering today. Now, first of all, so many people ask me almost every day, what is intermittent fasting? And basically, intermittent fasting is a term that is referring to alternating periods of fasting with periods of eating. Most fasting protocols call for periods of fasting that last anywhere from 12 hours to 48 consecutive hours. The rules of fasting are not hard and fast, but rather subjective, and there are a number of studies that show that intermittent fasting or even long-term fasting may help with. And these are some pretty awesome benefits. Let's get into those. It can help with weight loss. It can help with increased energy levels, decreased inflammation inside of the body, improved insulin sensitivity for overweight women and women with diabetes, improves the body's response to stress, increases the production of neurotrophic growth factor, which can help relieve depression and anxiety. It improves cognitive function and may protect against the development of Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases. Now, I don't know about you, but those are some pretty remarkable benefits. And when I think about some of these benefits, I think about how it's helping to stave us away from things like inflammation and chronic disease, which we all know stems from inflammatory issues to begin with. Now, one of the reasons scientists think that fasting can be beneficial is because of the stress factor. Now, I know we talk a lot about stress here on the podcast, and it usually has a negative connotation. However, some forms of stress can be very beneficial, especially to our mitochondria and to our cells. Also, when you look at stress, there's a lot of ways that we take on stress, such as exercise. Exercise is such a great example here. Exercise puts a stress on our muscles, our bones, and our cardiovascular system. This stress combined with periods of rest allows our cells to repair and actually become stronger. Your cells adapt to stress, causing your body to potentially become more resistant to oxidative stress and maybe even disease. Although more research is needed to prove the absolute benefits of intermittent fasting, and let me let me tell you, there is so much research going on right now, but it's still in the works. A lot of the research is promising, but let's dive into specifically the question that comes up so often for me, which is, are there risks that women need to be concerned about when it comes to long-term or intermittent fasting? So let's say you've decided to try intermittent fasting, but it's not going 100% as well as you thought it was going to go. You've tried to fast for 18 hours or more, and now you're starving, cranky, and your brain is in a fog. 
Perhaps you've tried to do too much too fast, or you're so hungry at the end of the fast that you end up overeating. It's important to keep in mind that when your body perceives that you are starving, it will ramp up the production of leptin and ghrelin, two important metabolic hormones that are responsible for controlling your hunger and satiety cues. In addition, women need to be more careful when implementing intermittent fasting as our bodies are more sensitive to starvation. And let me tell you, we are going to get into exactly why that's the case. Now, if you're not careful, intermittent fasting and especially long-term fasting can lead to reproductive issues such as infertility, early menopause, worsening of other health symptoms, and increased cortisol levels, right? So we're too much stress inside of that system. We're looking for the right amount of stress, but not too much stress. It's like the Goldilocks of stress. And these risk factors backed by research are exactly what we're gonna be discussing today, as I mentioned. So it's time to uncover the concerns and the benefits of long-term fasting and intermittent fasting, particularly for women, because here's the deal, and we're gonna talk about this as well. The research isn't really there for for women, and we're gonna be discussing how we can interpret the research that exists and why we're hoping that more research is gonna come out on this particular topic for us. Now, before we jump into this fun conversation with Dr. Stephanie, I just want to take a moment and celebrate you, particularly your wins. One particular healing rock star is Maxine. I'm excited to shout out her win that she shared on iTunes at the very end of July. Here is what she had to say. I have learned so much from your podcast, armed with the knowledge I've gained from you and your amazing guests and the help of a functional medicine practitioner, I am taking control of my own health. Woohoo! I love to hear that, Maxine. Ooh, that makes me feel so good. I am 53 years young in perimenopause and have lost 25 pounds by changing to a paleo lifestyle. I have been a hormonal mess for most of my life and now feeling better than I have in years. I want to send you a heartfelt thank you for empowering me and women everywhere to believe in ourselves and search tirelessly for answers to our health challenges. Well, Maxine, I can't tell you how happy I am that you are feeling so incredible, right? 53 years old, such a young time, such a really young age. Thank you so much for sharing your big win and finding a functional doctor that is supporting your healing. I am holding space for your continued amazing success and that you continue to feel better for many, many, many years to come. Now, if you're listening, Maxine, I would love to gift you a signed copy of my book, The Essential Oils Hormone Solution. Just reach out to me on Facebook or on Instagram at Dr. Marisa. Well, follow podcast listeners. If you are listening today, this podcast is all about empowerment. And if it has helped you in any way, I would love to shout you out too. You can reach out to me and share your big wins via Instagram, Facebook, or the gold standard that I love, 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 and it means the world to me is on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you love to plug into. That way, not only can I continue to support you based on what you're looking for and how many, how great your wins have been, but also open the door to supporting more women who are ready to become the CEO of their health. Now, let's dive into this incredible conversation with Dr. Stephanie, but first, I want to sing her praises. 
Dr. Stephanie Estima is an expert in metabolism and body composition. She is a doctor of chiropractic with a special interest in functional neurology, brain metabolism, and the specific application of the ketogenic diet and fasting for the female physiology. Clearly, she is the right woman to be having this conversation with. Using her framework, the Estima method, she is particularly focused on distilling strategies in nutritional proximities, movement, posture, and mindset to actualize human potential, health span, longevity, and achievement. She is a top writer on medium.com with millions of reads in the health category and has been on some of the biggest international stages. Let's welcome her on. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Honey, how are you doing today? I'm so good. I'm so happy to be here with you. I missed you so much. I'm happy that we're having this chat today. I've missed you so much. You can tell I'm like just giddy. There's every cell in my body is just jumping. And not only do we get to connect today on a really incredible topic, and it's all about the ladies. We're talking about fasting. We're talking about intermittent fasting, and we're talking about how it impacts our bodies. And if it's right for us, right? If it's right for us, you and I, and all these other amazing women that we get to serve. But then I get to see you next week in person. Because we don't live very close. You know, you are way up in Canada and I'm over here in San Diego. So it is such a treat. We'll get to, we'll get to hang out in the next couple of days or next week. I can't wait. I can't wait. It's going to be great. Well, before we get into fasting, I want to hear a little bit about your story. And most particularly, not just your story into, into becoming an expertise in this, but also your story and what has been your experiences when you have kind of created a strategy around fasting for yourself? And what have been some of those results for you? My background uh, in terms of my professional training, I'm a doctor of chiropractic. I have a special interest in metabolism and body composition, and specifically as it pertains to female health. I started playing around with the ketogenic diet and fasting mimetics somewhere around 2015, 2016. I started seeing a gentleman who was, you know, you know, Giovanni, yeah. uh, my life partner, and he at the time about 80 pounds overweight. So we started experimenting with him. Uh, so my, I was playing around with it with myself and I started giving him protocols. Of course, I'm always like the guinea pig. I'm like guinea pig number one and he's guinea pig number two. So I was giving him some protocols and I was following them as well. And it was interesting because we noticed some stark differences in terms of our responses to both the ketogenic diet and to fasting. So uh, right off the bat, he was dropping weight. Like it was like, he just thought about it and it was like, whoops, it there's 10 pounds. You know? Yeah. <laughs> right. It's not that I was, you know, to the point where I was morbidly obese or anything, but just wanting to like trim up and, and, you know, put on some more lean muscle mass. So I was playing around with fasting because a lot of the, you know, people at the time that I was listening to, whether it's podcasts or doctors, what have you, they were all men and that's fine. But all the guys kind of in the online space and the experts were all talking about this really awesome thing called fasting. So I started playing around with it and started noticing a couple things uh, personally uh, that I wasn't super happy with. So I would do like the long fasts with Giovanni. We would do five-day fasts. We would try to do them three-day fasts at least every month. And we were trying to do this like longer five-day fast every quarter. And I started noticing some sleep issues that I, I started having trouble initiating sleep and I had trouble maintaining sleep. 
and just my hunger signal. So a lot of times in the literature or online, you'll read about things like, oh, you know, after two or three days, your, you know, your ghrelin and your leptin signaling or your hunger signals tend to normalize and you're not as hungry. And I didn't necessarily find that. I, I found that for sure there was a there was a dampening or there was an attenuation of my hunger signals. But I found that I was it took me longer to be satiated when we were doing some of these shorter daily fasts. So uh, led me into kind of diving into some of the literature. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of stuff around females who are of a healthy BMI and the protocols or the clinical, you know, there hasn't been a lot of clinical trials or research on women who are not obese. It's very well established for women and men who have excess adiposity, excess fat on their body, the benefits of fasting. So whether that's a short-term fast, and we can kind of define what that is for your listeners, as well as longer-term fast, you know, we know that it reduces inflammation, promotes autophagy, helps with insulin sensitivity or sensitization of the cells. There's all these different things for people who are obese and the prolific beneficial effects that fasting has. But for a woman like you or a woman like me who is not necessarily considered obese, the research is pretty stark. And there are a couple of, we can talk about some of the rodent models. And I know rodent, not the same as human, I get it. But when we have looked at mice, there's some pretty scary things that happen to normal mice under either a caloric restricted model. So they're either either like 20 or 40% of their calories or they're practicing fasting. So we see, you know, we can get into it, but we see things like females, they have a bigger stress response. So their areas in their brain, the hypothalamus and the communication with the adrenal glands is heightened. So we have a higher stress response. We see poor sleeping patterns, which is something that I notice like personally as well. And then the longer these mice and these rats were fasted, their, I mean, it's kind of scary, but their, you know, their ovaries shrank, they masculinized, they lost their periods, they became anovulatory. So I think it's really important as a clinician, but also as a consumer to be understanding what type of fasting protocols are best for you and when. Mm, I absolutely agree. And so basically breaking down what you just said that outside of the research, when we're looking at someone who's obese, who has a lot of adipose tissue to lose, we don't really have a lot of research that can demonstrate the positive attributes of fasting or intermittent fasting for women at this time, except for some of the studies that we see in mice. And those studies aren't necessarily a positive correlations for our benefits in when we do fasting. Is that correct? Right. I mean, whenever you look at a rodent study, it always has to be like, okay, it's a rodent we're looking at. I mean, rodents and humans are not exactly comparable, but someone who is obese, whether you are a female or a male, fasting is going to be beneficial for you, either short-term fasting or long-term fasting. But for a woman who wants to do it for health benefits, someone who might be interested in it for longevity or health span, who wants to you know, try to prevent disease or to live longer so she can be around for her grandkids and her great-grandkids, but she's not necessarily obese, this is where we see a lot of what well, we see, almost a complete absence of the literature in terms of clinical protocols for these women. But in the few kind of rodent models that we have, it's like, it doesn't really look that great. I know for myself, you know, as I'm playing with, and I say playing, still play, trying to figure it out. As I'm working through intermittent fasting, a big reason why I'm doing it is for really is for longevity because of the research that we see, not necessarily pertaining specifically to me and my demographic, but just the general overall research. 
I think the reason why this is a complex topic or a confusing subject is because there is different types of fasting strategies out there. And I, I think people get them jumbled up. Can we talk a little bit about the different types of fasting strategies? And then in that conversation, what do you deem to be the safest or something that one could potentially try without any necessarily significant negative repercussions, if there's any at all? Like what would be the place where we could play or that we could try this where we wouldn't mess a lot of stuff up? Like we wouldn't throw our hormones off significantly if we were to give it a go. Sure. Yeah. And these are really good questions. So I think, you know, for the listener, the way that I like to think about fasting is I like to put them into two distinct buckets. So we have sort of a short-term fasting bucket, and then we have a long-term fasting bucket. So the short-term bucket is basically anything where you are restricting your feeding window. It could be as little as eight hours. You could just kind of do it while you are sleeping and then wake up and eat all day. It could be a 10-hour fast, 12-hour fast, eight-hour fast, four-hour fast. And I also can consider a 24-hour fast in that in that category or that bucket of short-term fasting. So what I mean by that is a short-term fast is you are still consuming food every single day. So even on a 24-hour fast, you may have dinner on a Sunday night and then you'll wait 24 hours until Monday night, but you're still eating once on Sunday and once on Monday. So these shorter-term fasts are very commonly referred to as intermittent fasting. Some people call them time-restricted eating. So a time-restricted eating window might be, let's say you eat from you know 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and then you fast from 6 p.m. overnight to 10 a.m. the next day. Very commonly in the paleo and the keto world, we do we call it intermittent fasting or a 16-8 protocol. So you're eating in an eight-hour window and then you have a, a complementary 16-hour fast to make up that 24-hour cycle. So that's what I would consider a, like a short-term fast. And then we have the long-term fast. So really basically anything that's north of 24 hours is what I would categorize as a longer fast. So 36 hours, like that's a day and a half, 48 would be two days, 72 would be three days, and so on and so forth. So when we think about the different types of fasting. So for for people that come to me and they say, you know, I've never fasted before. I'm really scared. It seems like I'm going to be hungry and I'm I'm going to become this mad woman and I'm going to be crazy for food. A couple things to consider is that you already fast every single day. So you go to sleep and you don't eat over that time, but you don't wake up and you're, you know, you don't necessarily wake up and you're starving because your body has physiological processes and mechanisms in order to sustain the glucose needs, you know, that you have overnight. So overnight, we will typically find that, you know, if required, your liver will break down glucose in the stored form is called glycogen. So we have this glycogenolysis and this glycogen now is broken up, freed out by the liver. So your body can use the glucose or the, you know, like a fancy word for sugar, as a substrate for energy production. So you already have the built-in mechanism to not always have food in your mouth. Right. Because liver stores up, what, two days, three days of glycogen, give or take? Yeah. It's like a 24 to 48 hour store for like, it's, it's, you know, varies from person to person, but a really fun like nerd tip, which is like, these are the things that I like get excited about. Like ha- like 10% of the weight of the liver is actually glycogen. Like 10, like a 10th of the weight of the it's liver just, is it's it's crazy. Just sugar. Yeah. It's just sugar. It's just there in case we need your, your it. Your liver just in case you are in, like you fell down a careen and you don't have a way out for two days. Your liver is kicking in. 
You're good. And then we also have a second layer of security on top of that. So even you fall down the careen, two days, there's no food. Let's say it's three or four days, no food. Your body can now say, okay, so the glycogen's run out. We don't have any more glucose. Now let's go into our adipose tissue or our fat tissue. Let's break that up into usable substrates for energy. So when we open up a fat cell, for all the nerds that are listening, I love you and I hear you. So we break up the fat cell into, uh, it's a triglyceride. So it's a glycerin backbone with three fatty acids. The glycerin actually can go through something called de novo gluconeogenesis, which is a fancy word for saying making new glucose. And then the fatty acid can also serve as a food source as well or for energy source as well. So we already have built-in mechanisms for you to go without food. So this is a little bit of a a mindset shift for anybody that's never done fasting before because we're marketed in a completely different way, right? Like big food always thinks, it's always trying to tell us, snacks, snacks, snacks. Five to six little picks, you know, hundred calorie little this in your bag, throw it in your bag, make sure you always have food on you at all times. But the the reality is you do need to have times where you're resting or you're fasting or you're abstaining from food so that you can prepare the digestive system, so that you can clean up some of the cells that aren't working the way that they should. And we also just have a finite amount of blood. If you're constantly eating, your blood is always being thrown into your digestive tract and away from other areas like your immune system, your reproductive system, your musculoskeletal system, like all these different systems that we have in the body. So that's a bit of a on my soapbox, big food is evil, you know, <laughs> kind of rant. <laughs> so you don't need to snack, you can. You do not need a snack. I am not a proponent of snacking. You and I both aren't. And you know, our mentor, JJ, you know, she'll smack us if she sees a snack in our hand. Not that we have snacks in our hand ever, but she's like, no snacking. And this is what you touched upon and kind of break that down into layman's terms is that basically when you eat, it requires, it's like, it's like putting gas in the gas tank. It's exhaust. Your body takes a lot of oxidative exhaust. A lot of stuff is created because of that. A lot of energy is created because of that. And if you don't give your body a break, at least several hour break in between meals, you're constantly wearing down the body. You're constantly wearing down that car, that vehicle and creating exhaust. And I think that's really what you're talking about too, is the cells don't have a chance to reset. Your digestive system doesn't have a chance to reset. You're constantly putting exhaust into the system basically. 100%. And it's done in an oxidative state. So of course, you're going to have, whenever you have oxygen present, you're going to have byproducts of that free radicals, reactive oxygen species. So you also have to have time to clean that up and just rest and clean that up. But if you're constantly front-loading it with food, you don't necessarily have the the chance to kind of clean that up the way that it should be. So I just wanted to start off with that. So often a really easy way to start fasting, if you are a man or a woman, but in particular, I love this for females because females naturally, we are, I mean, let's just, this is not derogatory towards men in any way, but we're just more complex than men. We just are. And it's not to say that men are just like, you know, but we just, we have, we have a menstrual cycle. We make babies, we create life, you know, and we create life. It's good. It's complex. Yeah. And even like through the course of a woman's life, she's so different. There's a time when she's pre-menarch, like pre, you know, she doesn't have her period yet. So there's a certain hormonal environment there. And then she has, you know, 40 years or so when she is different almost every single day of the month because she sometimes has higher estrogen, sometimes higher progesterone. And then, you know, hoping that's normal. There's also some aberrant, you know, like there's derangement that can happen there. And then we have like the peri and postmenopausal women where we have this like sudden destruction of our estrogen 
estrogen and progesterones. So we're just different. We're just more complex. Monthly, annually, seasonally, my goodness. I mean, we're just no wonder, no wonder, no wonder nobody wants to study us. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that we are often excluded from studies because peri and postmenopausal women are most often excluded from studies because they either need to be on like a hormone replacement therapy so they can be considered, you know, like the confounding variables. And I'm using air quotes right now, you know, confounding variables of being perimenopausal can be explained away. But even just my own personal mood, I feel like the first half of my cycle, I'm out like, you know, right now, this is the first half of my cycle. I'm like, Marisa, come, I love you. Let's talk. And then the second half of my cycle, I'm much more inward. I'm much more likely to read a book. I want to study something. I don't necessarily want to be interacting with people as much as I do in the first half of my cycle. Absolutely. We actually have a couple episodes on this podcast about all that, like how, how your body is changing every part of like the four parts of the cycle and how like taking, taking advantage of every single part of that cycle, you know, and that's, that's the complexity of us. So let's talk about given that we're complex and thank goodness for that. I love, I love how complex you are, girl. And I love how complex I am and all the ladies who are listening right now. But talk to me about what, what about the complexities of us, our hormones, I wouldn't say complicate intermittent fasting, but what are some considerations that we need we need to take into account? Well, there's two, well, there's there's many. I think that there's two that I think most women can relate to. One, I think, you know, I gave you the example of when Giovanni and I were doing these like longer fasts and he would just like blink and he would lose 30 pounds. Females are much more defensive of our fat stores for the reasons that you just said, because we have this biological obligation for reproduction. And we want to, from a historical anthropological point of view, we want to be able to have excess fat stores just in case there is no food. So we definitely defend our fat stores much more aggressively than our male counterparts do. And I think when it comes to females and fasting, one of the things that we do want to be thinking about is what happens when you fast. Fasting is a tool, but it's also a stressor. So it does ramp up cortisol. It does ramp up adrenaline. So a woman who has already, so, you know, again, no comment on the men here, but what I do find clinically with patients is that a woman who's coming to me, let's call her 45 to 50 years old, she has one to two children. She has bared the brunt. Well, first of all, the nutritional and physical event of being pregnant, like the the depleting of her physical and nutrient stores, being pregnant and giving birth. Then we give her the task of breastfeeding. And then just socioeconomically, females often just bear the brunt of being the primary caregiver. They're the ones that wake up in the middle of the night to clean the snot from the kid's nose. They're the ones, the baby has a nightmare. They're the ones that are already tapping into that stress response more often than men. And that's just, that's not an opinion. It's it's just what it is. And then if if that woman has also chosen to go back to work, she may get up and comfort her daughter or son over the nightmare that they just had. And then she has to get up at six and go to work anyway. She doesn't have the opportunity to sort of like catch up on that sleep as a male might. So she's already more taxed. Her cortisol levels have already been drawn upon her HPA axis or this kind of pathway between your brain and your adrenal gland, it's called the hypothalamic pituitary axis, has already been taxed. So over time, what I find is females develop, I don't like the word adrenal fatigue. I do prefer the term cortisol resistance, where she's been taxing this HPA axis. And now the target cells of cortisol are less responsive. 
So in the same way that we think about insulin resistance, leptin resistance, that's another thing that females have to deal with. Cortisol resistance is a thing. So when a woman will fast, that is going to, again, draw on that stressor, that it's going to be a stressor for that female's body. And we know that cortisol, hypocortisolemia, kind of runs in parallel with hyperinsulinemia, right? So that also prevents Let's connect with that because a lot of people don't realize that cortisol is regulating insulin and we, we don't necessarily put these things together. So if you've got a situation where, and the HPA axis for all of you is the hypo, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And basically that's the signal that your brain is receiving a stranger danger signal, or you're late to a meeting and it's still a stranger danger signal. It doesn't matter. It's all perceived stress so often sends a message down to the adrenals. And we go into that state of mode probably 50 plus times a day on average. And so when we go into that, that hyper cortisol state, we will become resistant. It's like, it's like crying wolf. 50 plus times a day, and you're not getting chased by anything. But what happens is that you have to surge insulin because if you, if your body instinctively thinks that you're being chased by a tiger or whatever it may be, but you just got an Instagram message or a text message, your body still is responding. It doesn't matter what it was. And so now you've got a situation where you are firing off high levels of glucose in the blood because your body is getting ready. So there's a kind of a cascade that's happening here when we are stressing the system. For all the reasons that you just described, I don't like generally prescribing longer term fasts for women. So I hate to say, well, it depends, but it really does. Like it really depends on the person's history. It really depends on how many children they've had, what their relationship with their, you know, there's, there's so many kind of multimodal things that go into this, but as a general blanket rule, I generally don't like long-term fasting for females. One, we see in the literature with these rodent studies that I was referring to earlier, we see this like masculinization of the ovaries, this amenorrhea or these like this weird cycle where the woman now is not converting her testosterones into her estrogens the way that they should. And we start to see sleep pattern disturbances. And we like, if you, if you're just a mom of like a 10 or a 12 year old, you're like, oh yeah, I have sleep disturbances. Like I, I've, that's like been my life for the past 10 years. So I do like the idea of a lower amplitude, smaller duration fast. So you can still reap some of the, there are a lot of benefits to fasting. So we touched on them before, right? The autophagy, so the cleaning of the, I like to call it Pac-Man of your cells. So it's like the Pac-Man just kind of goes and takes out all the garbage and like eats the cherry. And eats Who doesn't want that? <laughs> <laughs> doesn't want that, right? So you do want that. You want to make sure that you're cleaning out cells and like, you know, broken bits of cells and nucleotides and stuff that shouldn't be there because that does contribute to longevity. You definitely want to give yourself a break from eating so that your insulin levels can fall and that there's a lot of evidence around increasing the sensitization of insulin on cells when we do that. So I love fasting and I typically practice, so I've been fasting for many, many years, and I started off doing like a 12-hour, which is probably the best. If you've never fasted before, that's actually where I like to start most people. So like 12 hours where you are eating. So let's call it, you start eating at 7 in the morning, you have your breakfast, you know, and then you just, your eating window stops at 7 p.m. So you're still giving your stomach a chance to empty a couple hours before you go to sleep. So that includes like eight hours of 
it's almost like cheating because it's like eight hours of like sleeping where you're going to fast anyway. But you know, 12 hours is a nice way to start. And then I like to just slowly over time tighten up that eating window. So I started off with 12. I went to 16. I did that for one or two years. I felt like that was just a really nice rhythm for me. And I also say, this question always comes up a lot. Yes, I work out fasted. I don't typically eat in the morning and I do heavy weights as well fasted. I do cardio fasted just in case you're wondering, because that's always a question. What about if I work out? Don't I need to eat? It's like, no, you know. You work out in the mornings. I do. I work out in the mornings. I typically work out in the mornings. I have a mix of high intensity interval stuff where I'm like sprinting with Giovanni who always kicks my ass, but I will be kicking his ass soon. I do powerlifting. So like a lot of very, very heavy weights to maximum fatigue. So like three to five reps. And then I also endurance weights as well. So like 10 to 12 reps, that kind of thing. So I do all of those fasted. I do. I don't, you, I really don't require food. None of us really do, but I don't have food before I work out. So for several years you were doing 16 and I would always tell people start with 12. You could even do 12 to 13 to 14 or 12 to 14, 16, 16 has been my sweet spot for about a year or so. But now you said after two years, you're kind of, you've moved into an even tighter I'm just naturally moving to a tighter window and it's more intuitive eating. Like I, you know, the couple days before my period, it's not just a three or four hour window, but most days I will eat in a two to four hour window or even just once a day. So that's like a 20, that would be considered like a 24 hour fast where you're eating one time and then you eat, you know, at the same time the next day. And that's just where I'm naturally feeling where my groove is. And like I said, it changes based on, you know, where I am in my menstrual cycle, like three to four days out of my, before my period starts, I definitely eat over, like my eating window is longer and my caloric intake is higher as well. Hmm, That makes so much sense. And one of the things I've looked at when I've been studying this or figuring this out for women, 12 hours seems very manageable. Let's say you want to get into like the 16 hour or even 18 hour range. Would you even recommend crescendos? Like maybe three days a week, you're doing 18 hours or three days a week, you're doing 24 hours. And then the other, other days of the week, you know, maybe it's back to 14 or 16 or whatever feels good to you. Cause so that intuitive eating as well. So there are definitely during the week, I aim for 16 to 18, but then there'll be a day where I am, I am about to literally rip someone's head off. And I'm like, you know what? I'm, it's going to be a 14 hour day today. Like I'm eating because I'm not going to torture myself because I'm trying to get to that, that 16 hour mark or that 18 hour mark. Like, so you, we get to, you know, you just, and that's just it. It doesn't have to, you can decide what you want to do. And I think even in the beginning when I've worked with women, like maybe the four days this week, you're going to do this and then whatever, figure out those other couple days. So even kind of crescendo yourself and just feeling what's, what's right for you. I think ultimately that's the big thing is it's got to feel good. A hundred percent. And I would also add two things onto what you just said. One, I think where you are, if you are still menstruating, I think it's really important to understand where you are in your cycle. I often find the first two weeks, the week of my period and the week after, it's much easier for me to do those OMADs, those one meal a days. The second half, sometimes it doesn't work. So I need a little bit of a longer eating. You luteal phase is, we all know it's when it hits the fan, right? Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's a little bit of that. And I also think that there's also just the idea of being gentle with yourself. You know, if you, even if you're in that first phase or, you know, the first week or two of your, of your cycle and it needs to be a 10 hour eating window, like, so be it. It's okay. 
I think sometimes we're so cerebral about things and I'm guilty of this as well. I sometimes have thought to myself, like my body is literally just the container for my brain to walk around in. Like I forget to check, you know, like I forget to check in like, what my, what is my body saying? It's like, nope, this is what I have to do. It's this idea of just checking in with your body and listening to what your body is telling you and being okay with it. Because, you know, we were talking about this off camera just before the podcast started, but your physiological state when you do eat sometimes matters more than what you're eating as well. If you're beating yourself up because you meant to do a 16 hour, but it's only going to be 12 hours today or 14 hours, you're putting yourself into the sympathetic dominant stress response. And guess what's going to happen? All of your blood is going to go into your muscles because that's what happens in sympathetics. And you're going to bring the blood away from your digestive system, which is you want to be in a state of parasympathetics when you're eating. So you want to be in gratitude. You want to be chewing your food and being conscious of the front of you, not just kind of getting it in because you have to get to the next meeting or what have you. So I just wanted to like for all the ladies that are like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do 68. I'm going to do it every day and it's going to be great. You know, some days it will be great and some days it won't. And that's completely okay. I was thinking about as we're having this conversation that I am getting super, I'm getting hangry and I don't really know why today is the day for that, but I, and I am at this moment, I technically am supposed to be waiting until noon, but girl, after this podcast, I was first language I was going to say is I'm going to cave. That's not what I mean. I just mean, I'm going to listen to my body, listen to my body's intuition because my brain's beginning to hurt. You know, like that's how I know. Oh, one more thing. It was interesting. I don't remember who I was talking to. Oh, I was at a lecture maybe it was Frank Lippman. He was talking about brainwashing and not being brainwashed. We're talking about glial cells going in and washing the brain. And basically the big, the, the big concept there is that eat as early as you can at night, because the longer you can go between a meal and going to bed will guarantee that your body or your brain gets a thorough cleaning. Basically, it's a brain cleaning. I don't know if you want to connect on that. But I think it's just one of those things that people should know, like those late night snacks. Mm -mm, it's not giving yourself the opportunity to reset and clean that brain, which you know, we always think that the brain is it's like this separate entity from the body because literature for so long had us thinking that. But no, that is not the truth. It's all interconnected. And so in order for us to really reset the brain and make sure that our brain is functioning properly, that we're cleaning out any kind of like that cell autophagy that we're talking about, the little Pac-Man to go in, we have got to have a decent window. And I think ideally at least three to four hours before bedtime. I agree. And that's just honoring your biology. So when we think about syncing up the brain, there's a really good reason. There's a couple of good reasons why eating right before bed is not a great idea. So the first is we have this uh, central clock in the brain. It's like literally right behind and above the eye. It's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. That's our master. It's like, say that five fast. It sounds like supercalifragilistic, you know, but it, it totally that's our master <laughs> clock. So that's the thing that, that it, it detects light coming in from the retina. And it's like, okay, it's light time. It's like rev up the system. And then when evening comes, you know, the light starts to, so we get less blue light, there's more infrared. So, you know, your, your brain's like, okay, it starts, let's start winding the body down. We'll start increasing our melatonin secretion, all this kind of stuff. So if you have a late night snack, yeah. So if you, so you have this main clock in the body, but we also have clocks in the rest of the body as well. So the liver is another, what we call a peripheral clock. So if you eat, if you have a late night snack, your liver is going to talk to your brain and say, Hey, there's energy coming in here. There's energy. It's time to rev up, but that's not what your brain's like, but there's no light. Why is there, why do we have energy coming in? 
why is this happening? Why is this happening? <laughs> there's this dissonance. There's this weirdness that happens. So we see people who eat late, they tend to have really wacky dreams. The quality of their sleep tends to be affected. So they don't tend to get enough REM sleep. They don't be, they're not able to kind of go through the whole cycle to get to REM. And then their deep sleep tends to be affected as well. And then the glial cell thing that you mentioned. So a lot of us think about, you know, in our brains, we have two main types of cells. One is a neuron, which everyone sort of thinks, oh, that's like a brain cell. And that's true. But the other is our glial cells. So in the evening, those are the worker bees. I call them the landscapers. Those are like the little lawn, mo- like the, it's like the pool guy and the, you know, they come and they, they trim all the neurons that are like dead, not working the way that they should. And then overnight they actually shrink. I think it's like 150 to 200% of their size so that your cerebrospinal fluid can kind of come in and then wash. Like you were talking about that brainwash, that car wash kind of thing. And that's where we get rid of things like tau tangles and beta amyloid plaques, which are associated with things like Alzheimer's and all that stuff. So really, really important for us to be getting, for us to be syncing up our feeding with our natural schedule, with our natural circadian rhythm. I love that you brought that up because it's so, it's, everyone's like, oh, a little bit. And like the food that people tend to eat in the evening is like wine. So it's like liquid sugar and like chips and, you know, it's, it's all chips, this stuff. Popcorn, that, cookie. Yeah. 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 All the, all the, yeah. And then, let me tell you, your brain is like, what do we do with this? <laughs> yeah. What do we do? What do I do with this? And yeah. so I just, it's one of those things was that I knew that little tidbit. I think that's going to be the tidbit. People are going to be like, oh my, I had no idea. We want to make sure. We are car washing our brains every single night. Let those little glial cells do their job. Either let them work or be, or let them clean the hedges, whatever you guys want to think about it. But the longer gap you can go, and I mean, that's why, you know, older people really have it going on. You know, five o'clock dinner, six o'clock dinner time. That's what time it is. (laughs) (laughs) They're right. I love that. My personal preference, if I can get it right, is eating in the morning. I like to have something in the morning and I actually like to stop eating at about two or three. I like to flip my fasting so that my fasting is on the back end of the day. Like a lot, I know a lot of people do the fasting in the, in the first I do half the of the day. I love um, me some dinner. Yeah. I cannot break up with dinner, you know? No. You, you, <laughs> <laughs> don't take the dinner away. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. Don't take my dinner away. You can have my breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is about dinner, but yes, no. And I mean, getting where you fit in. I, we were just, I was talking to our mentor, JJ and JJ it's breakfast. She cannot go without breakfast. The arms and that skinny, I mean, you know, yeah, she's, she's like, like that way. Yeah, I like, I like yeah. food in the morning. They eat lunch. They stop eating around like two or three. It's kind of same thing. And then they, that's it. Their, they, their glial cells are really set up for, for <laughs> they're like ready to clean. Yeah. <laughs> ready to go. Um, and it's getting where you fit in, whatever fits well with you. Again, food, we gotta, we gotta remind ourselves that food is cultural. Food is communal. Food is a lot of things. And so dinner has always been a very communal time where, you know, I'm cooking in the kitchen with my husband. And so that's really special for us. And so therefore we just cut out breakfast because breakfast was never, you know, we weren't, we weren't communing over breakfast. You kind of just always grabbing something and going. So my smoothie could go, you know what I'm saying? I, I moved it to lunch instead. So figuring out what works best for you. I mean, I think it's just a matter of how you operate with your family, how you operate in your life to make it work best for you. There's no wrong way. And I also piggyback on that and say, I have young children. So we tend to, you know, when my kids are with me, like they spend time with their dad as well. But then when they're with me, like dinner time is the time where we sit down and 
was your day and all of that. So it can be weird if I'm just having water. So I do like, I do kind of play around a little bit with my timing of my meals. Like, you know, right now they're on holidays with their dad. So, you know, I had my food this morning, you know, I'm going to stop eating around two or three o'clock and then I'm going to like, that's just naturally what I like. But when I have young children, I make, I make accommodations for family life as well. So there's no wrong, right or wrong way to do it. It's just what fits your lifestyle because that's the biggest predictive thing of success. If it's not going to work and you're going to hate it and be miserable, then you're not going to do it. I mean, and then you're going to you know, gain weight and not get the outcomes that you want. So we just have to, it's all about just finding something that's flexible to fit in with your lifestyle. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you mentioned on a personal level that you're a mama. You're a mama. You got young growing boys. I mean, like growing with insatiable appetites and you're making it work, you know, and that's the beauty of it is that I think sometimes I think practitioners who come on here that we're like super beans and somehow we found a way to manipulate life. But at the end of the day, life is happening with us as well. We're always having to accommodate family and just like, just like everyone else. And so I'm so glad that you shared a little bit about that because yeah, you want to, you want to be the mama and show up for the boys and, and do the family time. And then also take care of you and do what's right for you as well. And there's, there's a fine balance and in, in making that work. And sometimes I get it right. And sometimes I fail miserably and that's just absolutely the truth of it. Yeah. <laughs> that's just life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, when we're exploring and figuring out what's right for our bodies, it's going to be a lot of trial and error. And the more you and I work with people and we, we when, and work with even our own bodies, it's constantly trial and error and figuring out what the right thing is. The 16-8 rule for you, it's changed and it's adapted these last several years or this last couple of years. So, I mean, that's important to note that what it looked like a couple of years ago isn't what it looks like today. And, and that's okay as well. Girl, where can we find you? Where can we plug into you? Where can we get more of this yummy goodness? And we can nerd out on all the good things that you're studying and you're researching and you're sharing with us in the world. Uh, probably the easiest way to interact with me would be on Instagram. So at dr.stephanie.estima. You can go to drstephanieestima.com. I have a couple of online offerings and courses there that I work with people on. And if you want to read more of my, if you want to go on a little nerd, if you want to nerd out with me, I've written uh, some articles on Medium as well. So I can link to all of those things for your readers too. Perfect. And you got a goodie. You got a free gift for us, which I was so excited about. So you've got oh, a guide yeah. on and keto. Girl, I'm looking at it right here and it will be in the show notes, but can you tell us a little bit about what this little guide is for, how we can use it and what's in it? So a lot of times when people are first starting out with either the ketogenic diet, which is like everyone's talking about keto all the time now, there's a lot of conflicting information in terms of how to start keto and just what we were talking about today in terms of fasting. So this is like a cheat sheet, quick start guide in terms of some principles that you can start implementing right away to start eating a nourishing ketogenic diet. I think there's a right and a wrong way to do keto. And I think there's a right and a wrong way to do fasting, whether you're a male or a female. So we've touched on most of those things today, but I think that this is a nice quick handout for you to have, you know, you can put it in your purse, you can keep it, you know, wherever it's going to be useful for you. It takes you through some of the principles around doing keto and fasting, right? Love it. Love it. I mean, I love when we have a resource where everything's kind of in there that allows us to disseminate all the things, right? It's one thing to hear us talking about it today, but it's another thing to have something like this. So I, I want you to go and grab it. It's going to be in the show notes, super easy to grab and definitely follow Stephanie, Dr. Stephanie on um, Instagram. I follow her on Instagram every single day and I love it because you are showing workouts, girl. You are showing us the deal. 
So you're so inspiring. And I can't wait to see you next week. Oh my god. I can't wait to see you too. I'm going to give you the biggest hugs. I feel like I have not seen you in person. IRL always trumps URL. In real life always trumps web. So I can't so wait true. to see you and Girl, give you a hug. It's been the fall. That's oh. how long it's been. So it's a while. Good time. It's been a little while. All right, darling. Well, until then, mwah, have a wonderful day and I'll see you soon, darling. Thank you so much. As you can tell, Stephanie and I are pretty much soul sisters from different countries, and I love her expertise in fasting and ketogenic research. As you learned, I have been personally doing intermittent fasting for over a year now, and I absolutely love it. The biggest reason that I chose to do it was cellular longevity and mitochondrial support, which transmits into more sustainable energy. And if you've heard me on this show, you know how much I just love more energy. And the number one goal that I had was to improve my energy levels, and guess what? It worked. It definitely made a huge difference in my energy levels, and that's why I have not changed the way I've been doing this. I've been loving intermittent fasting for my body. Now, that's not to say that I am perfect every single day, because I am far from perfect, right? I am imperfectly perfect pretty much on the daily. Just ask my husband. Now, there are some days where I can only make it to 12 or 14 hours, although my goal is 16 to 18 hours during the week. Now, initially, it wasn't easy. I remember getting started over a year ago and trying to get down to that eight-hour eating window. And so what I ended up doing, because I was struggling in the beginning at first as well, is I started with crescendo fasting because I felt it was easier and it felt like more grace with this technique. I wasn't, you know, anytime we're trying to do something and we keep not doing it the way we want to do it, there's, it feels like a failure. You beat yourself up over it. And I found myself doing that a little bit in that first week. So I started doing a little bit more research. I discovered crescendo fasting and it felt so right to me. So I think that it's a great place to start for women in particular because our bodies so badly want to just hold on to what we've got. And with crescendo fasting, it's not as much of a stressful situation. Now here is exactly what crescendo fasting is in case you're wondering. It is a method that is safer for women and is much less likely to cause hormonal imbalances. That's what I'm all about. Sign me up for no hormonal imbalances. I've had plenty. Crescendo fasting allows you to ease into it. Fasting for only 12 to 16 hours at a time at a frequency of two to three non-consecutive days per week. This could mean that you don't eat anything from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. three times a week. That is an easy place to start, especially if you sleep for at least eight hours a night. If you wanna increase your time and skip breakfast, go for it. Because guess what? I know people tell you, you gotta eat breakfast, But breakfast is actually the meal that I skip. So I stop eating between 7 and 8, and then I don't start eating again until like noon or 1. That's typically how I operate. And so breakfast is the one to go. As you guys heard me, I am all about dinner. And I'm about ready to go. I'm actually going to go eat dinner pretty quickly in just a second. I'm so excited. Dinner is my favorite. I don't know what it is. There's something about dinner that just feels really awesome. Now, What I want you to do, if you are interested in trying intermittent fasting, but you're not exactly sure how to do it, I want to invite you to check out Dr. Stephanie Estima's Guide to Fasting and Keto. I'm going to have the link in the show notes. This is episode 116. You can go to the show notes on my website, which is drmarisa.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to this podcast. 
Also, I'm gonna have a link to my blog on crescendo fasting in case you wanna learn more about how to do it with ease and grace. I just wanna make sure that you have a couple different resources that you can plug into to make this easy if you decide that this is the direction that you wanna go. Well, thank you so much for stopping by and listening to the Essentially You podcast. I know we had a blast, I hope you did. On the upcoming episode, I am bringing on a very, very special friend of mine, Elena Brower, and let me tell you, She and I have been trying to coordinate schedules for over half a year, and I am so happy. Today is the day that we are getting her all set up. You are going to love this interview so much. We're going to be chatting about on creating a self-care practice that is in alignment with your body's needs. And if there's anybody who understands this, it is this powerful and beautiful woman. So I can't wait to see you guys on the next episode with Elena. Until then, have an amazing day. Bye.